The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you've got your copies of God's Word, turn with me to Genesis. Genesis. In chapter 1. We're in this series of God's blueprint. That means we're staying in the book of Genesis as our foundational text. Now, that's not where we're going to just stop there, but that's where we are uh, rooted and from which we look at these uh, foundational issues, the foundations of life or the various sanctities of life. And uh, so I want you to look with me in Genesis 1.1. And then uh, skip down with me to verse 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then if you would slip down to verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let me back up again to that verse. Then God, singular, said, let us, plurality, make man in plurality, our image after plurality, our likeness. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. Well, brothers and sisters, we, uh, my... One of the clearest things to me, even as I prayed this morning, um, we are in a season uh, that some have seen coming, some have not seen it coming, but even those who saw it coming are amazed at the rapidity of this cultural movement of prog- secular progressivism and its handmaiden, which of course the scriptures indicate that have been true for 2,000 years since the ascension of Jesus, and that is the book of Revelation informs us that Satan makes war against the woman that is the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, and in the war against Christ, the war is directed against the woman, and there are two beasts that serve the evil one. Uh, One is the beast of the sea, and one is the beast of the land. The beast of the land is subservient to and uh, to the beast of the sea, which is 
the progressive, uh, which is the tyrannical authoritarian um, um, domination of humanity by a, um, a deity-consumed um, authority of governments and empires and uh, totalitarianism, served by a false religion, the beast of the of the sea. So that has always been true. We've always seen it, but it seems as if what the Bible indicates is toward the coming of Christ in the revealing of the man of lawlessness that will take on even greater proportions. And that's kind of what we see today with progressive secular movement and increasing fascism uh, that is adopted even by supposedly democratic federal um, governments uh, that are to be ruled of the people, by the people, and for the people. There's this ever-encroaching power uh, grab that takes place. And it can and is often supported by false religion with progressive Christianity, which we have studied as well. But what do the people of God do? They don't live in fear. They don't live in anxiety. They certainly have concerns and they address them. But what we do when the foundations are assaulted, even as we see culturally and in even in not just the mainline church that has already been um, that has already dissipated, but even in the historic evangelical church, as we see these things happen, we don't uh, we don't retreat, we don't recoil, we meet them, we meet it by making God our refuge. So I started the series off with Psalm 11. That the uh, what will the righteous do when the foundations are shaken? Foundations can be and are shaken, but what do we do? Psalm 11 says, "You take your refuge in the Lord." That's where you take your refuge, and you strengthen the foundations in the Lord and for the Lord. So I um, I have uh, guided us. Uh, into this endeavor, uh, two years, uh, starting two years ago, as we did the essential foundations uh, that are rooted in who God is, and that's found in the Apostles' Creed. And in the Apostles' Creed, the clear confidence in God is given in the 13 essential foundations that we looked at in the Apostles' Creed. They're arranged how? In a creed that is focused upon God himself. Upon God himself. It is a Trinitarian creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And in this Foundations 201, moving from the essential foundations to the what I'm calling the effective foundations, 15 of them that I'm going to and that I'm trying to draw out for you from the book of Genesis, we find ourselves in the same direction. Uh, the, how did the Apostles' Creed start off? I believe. Well, where does faith come from? This isn't hard. Come on. Hearing what? The Word. So where did we begin on our first foundation? The sanctity of divine revelation, general revelation, special revelation, and specifically the Word of God that gives us the ability to properly address general revelation. 
God's, God's revelation is infallible. God's revelation is in his word is inerrant. God's revelation is infallible, meaning reliable, inerrant, meaning without error and absolutely trustworthy. It's powerful, infallible. It's reliable. It is trustworthy, inerrant, down to the jot and the tittle and even the order of words, verbal word, plenary order of words is what we believe that in the original languages, the original authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the divine author gives us a trustworthy word. And it's also a word of perspicuity. That is a word of simplicity and consistency. It is a word of clarity. And it is a word that we, um, that we have accessible for us and available to us through the means of grace this morning. That's why I love the Lord's Day. In the Lord's Day, we gather around what? The praise of our triune God. How? With the Word of God, enabled by the Spirit of God, and everything that is done. I had a wonderful conversation with one of our new, uh, mem- uh, new members and uh, um, a new Christian that's growing in the Lord. And as we had this great, wonderful conversation, she was asking me about worship. And I explained to her that life worship is built upon Lord's Day worship, gathered worship, and gathered worship from the moment those chimes strike to the moment we give the benefit addiction. Everything we do is expressly commanded in God's Word, and everything we do is a venue for God's Word. We confess God's Word. We pray God's Word. We sing God's Word, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We read God's Word. We share God's Word, we, uh, and we preach God's Word. And the Spirit of God always works with the Word of God, and that is crucial in life. So we have the word of God present. Sanctify them in the word. And so the sanctity of God's word. Now you may say to me, now, but pastor, shouldn't the foundation number one be God himself? I mean, I'm glad you're here. Sanctity number two tonight is the sanctity of God. But shouldn't that have been first? And I would suggest to you, no, because you can't know God Unless the God whose attribute is light reveals himself to you. That's how you know him. He reveals himself to you in general revelation. But it is not sufficient for salvation or how to live for the Lord as the saved. It is sufficient to hold us accountable. It is sufficient to reveal his reality. So much so that the Bible says to deny him in creation to deny him is, um, is, is imbecilic. It is foolishness. It is only the fool that says in his heart there is no God. That it stands paramount throughout, throughout society. But it is not sufficient to save us. That word that is unstoppable to save us and to give us clarity. Not just that there's a God of eternal power, but who that God is in his existence, in his essence, and in his subsistence. Who he is in his existence, in his subsistence. I know there's a God. The creation shouts the creator. But I would never know, for instance, he dwells as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nor would I know his provision for my redemption. 
And I would never know those things without special revelation, the Word of God. So the fact is, you can't savingly know the God of the Word without the Word of God. Now, let me very quickly say, you can know the Word of God and not know the God of the Word. But you can't know the God of the Word without the Word of God. And you can't know the word, the God of the Word without the Word of God, but by the power of the Spirit of God at work in your life. So now that we come to God's Word, what does God's Word do as it sanctifies us, as it sets us apart? We become a sanctity, but that sanctity is rooted in who God is as He has revealed Himself to us. And in, um, uh, as the God of glory and grace. So who is he? So with the word of God, we begin to get a life view that's motivated by a life love that leads to a lifestyle. The lifestyle, knowing how to live in a fallen world in which sin is at work, in which sin is at work in the creation, sin is at work around us, sin is at work in us. How is it that we know how to live lifestyle? Only when we have a life view, a worldview that is biblical, God-centered, and spirit-filled. And that life view is desired by those who know and love the Lord. The life view comes from a life love. So in other words, when you come to Christ and receive a new heart, now you've got a life love. You are compelled by the love of God. The love of God compels us in Christ. And it compels us to do what? To go to the Word of God, surrender to the Spirit of God, to get the mind of God. To learn how to subject every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. Take every thought captive so that our mind is renewed by the Lord. I've said before, but if you don't mind, I'll say again just for clarity. When you get saved, you get a new heart. When you get saved, you get a new record. When you get saved, you get a growing new life. You get the promise of a new home. You get engaged into a new family. But you don't get a new mind. As as one preacher said to one time, he said, you still got stinking thinking. And you need to learn to, uh, as it were, every morning, instead of the default coming up of a self-absorbed mind that has been indelibly printed into your life, which is now called the old man because he's given you a new nature and a new heart, how is it you can start Thinking God's thoughts. In other words, have a life view that is framed by the word of God. That filters life's claims and experiences through word, the word of God. And stays focused on the God of the word. How can you do that? Well, the first thing you do is make sure from the word of God you know who God is. That's the first thing. Now, I want you to keep your fingers here in Genesis 1. But as I said, while Genesis 1 is going to be our, our, our place of sanctity, the origins of these foundations, I'm not going to stop at Genesis 1. I want to take you to some other texts that flesh out, that fill out, that fill in uh, Genesis. And uh, particularly this first one, in the beginning, God. 
created the heavens and the earth. Would you take your Bibles and would you go with me to John, first of all, something I quoted this morning, John chapter 17. Now, you've got to have your Bibles ready, okay? John 17. And I want you to look with me in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I want you to slip down with me to something he says at the beginning of this high priestly prayer, which he delivers in the upper room in the context of having established the Lord's Supper and the commandment that we love one another as he has loved us. And this is what he says in verse 3. And this, this, what I'm about to say, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, folks, we're going to do this a couple of more places, but I want you to go ahead and see it. That they know you, that's God, who we will understand as God the Father, and know who? His Son, God the Son. And do you remember just a few moments ago, we were back in Genesis, where Genesis 1 says, which is explaining the origin of space, time, and matter. It says, God did what? He spoke and created everything, and it was without form and void. In other words, it was formless and unfilled. It was unformed and unfilled, and the Spirit hovered. So do you see... Why, a few verses later, in the creation, when man gets created, on the sixth day, the formula is, God said, let us. Now, the us is not the doctrine of the Trinity, but it is a plurality pronoun declaring what? Plurality. So that would be two or more. So what we have is one God, and now we find that this God has multiplicity, though one. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, we call it the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. He is one. Now, I want you to jot down three words for me, okay? And I, they're going to be important in just a moment. Word number one is essence. Word number two is existence. Word number three is subsistence. The, so essence, existence, and subsistence. And I want you to hold those over there to the side. So here is God who is self-existing. Now, how many of you here are parents? How many of you here have been promoted and are grandparents? And how many of you, your children or your grandchildren, come up to you and say, Who made the world? And what do you, being a Christian, intelligent, highly discipled uh, follower of Jesus... What do you tell them when they say to you, who made the world? 
God made the world. Very good. You are awesome. Praise the Lord that God made the world. But then you know what's coming next, don't you? They're going to come back to you and say to you, Oh, thank you. Okay, who made God? Now we're going to find out if you've been coming to Sunday night church as well as Sunday morning church. Who made God? And of course, your answer is no one. God is self-existent. Over here is agnosticism or atheism, and it has to embrace a self-existent universe of some size or scope, and its trinity is space, time, and matter is self-existent. Then it has to create what they call deep time in order to make visible the notion that the self-existent, which, by the way, is a credo. That's a statement of faith. When Carl Sagan says the cosmos, meaning space, time, and um, space, time, and uh, matter in some order, Cosmos, not chaos, cosmos, an ordering of space, time, and matter. When he says cosmos, that's all there is, that's all there was, that's all there ever will be. That is a statement of faith. And he gives you his trinity. Space, time, matter are eternal. And if we give it enough, can I quote him? I've even got him pretty good. And if you give it billions and billions of years, then it becomes feasible that it orders itself. Although the second law of thermodynamics denies that. And what you observe in life is not an ordering up of space, time, and matter that's alone. I don't care how much time you give it. You find a order, you find a disordering down. It's called entropy. That's what you always find. But if we talk about it in enough time, perhaps we can make it feasible. But so what is the agnostic, or at least some segments of agnosticism, and what does the atheist say? They say this, here is your trinity, give it enough time, it is self-existent, and you get this. Well, I'll come back to that in another sanctity, but I want to leave it right there. But here's what we say. No, God is. Now, how does God reveal himself in his word to you? He reveals himself in a number of ways. One is by his acts. We call that providence. Another And history. Another way that he reveals himself to you from his word is not only his acts that you interpret from his word, but in his word he gives you his titles. And in his word he gives you his name. For instance, here in Genesis, El. And then we'll get El Shaddai, meaning I am what? God Almighty. El Shaddai. A Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh provides. 
He gives you his names to tell you who he is. See, for us, a name is just kind of like how do you catch somebody's attention? George, George. And uh, that's, but that's not a biblical. When you name something, you have authority over it. And when you name something, you define it. And God is telling you who he is through his name. And that name, when, every, when Moses says, how will they know you have sent me? the God of Israel. He said, you tell them my name, which is Yahweh. I am Yahweh, or its uh, derivative translation, Jehovah. And it means, I am. I am. Not, I was. Not, I will be. Not, I'm becoming something. It is, I am. You tell them, I am. Yahweh has sent me. He is the self-existing God. Now, what is it that we know about this self-existing God? Well, we now know he dwells in plurality. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. But it's an interesting word that's translated rightly in your Bible, one. It is the word echad. E-H, put a dot underneath the H. It's a hard H, which means people need to stand a distance away from you when you say it. Echad, not ehad. Don't, don't, don't pronounce it that way. It's not ehad. It's echad. And it means a, something that is singular with multiplicity. For instance, you find it, <clears throat> you find it when the spies get sent into the promised land and they come back, milk, honey, and by the way, they got a pole and they got what on it? What do they got hanging on that pole? Grape. They got these grapes hanging on it. And, but here's what the text says, that it, there was hanging on the pole an echad grape. An echad grape. It was so big and heavy, it did what? This isn't, come on, y'all. Don't y'all know your Old Testament? Come on. It bent the pole. The pole was bending. Now, does that mean they found a tree with a 700-pound grape on it? No, it's looking at a what? Cluster. But the cluster is not called in Hebrew grapes. It's called grape. A grape that is in cluster. It has multiplicity. That's why the word echad is used. It's called grape. Because of its being joined together, and it's called of essence a grape, yet its subsistence is multiplicity. And so it's called an echad. So that's why that word is used. Because a trinity has multiplicity to it, but God is one in existence and in essence. That's what God is. So, and the book of Genesis is revealing this to us, and the rest of the Bible gives us that 
that existence of God, that he is one God who dwells in three persons. And those three persons are revealed in creation, as the Father authors creation, the Son accomplishes creation, and the Holy Spirit applies creation. It is shown in in redemption. The Father authors our salvation. He has predestined us to be saved. He has sent His Son who accomplishes our redemption. And He has sent the Holy Spirit who secures, saves, and seals us in the Redeemer. In God's providence... The Father loves His people to care for them. The Son intercedes for them. And the Spirit utters His request on our behalf in life that are too deep to be uttered. So here is the Trinity at work in creation. And then, of course, the same thing will be true at the judgment. As the Father appoints the Son as judge. And the Spirit brings forth those who are to be judged at the last day. You've got the Trinity at work in creation, redemption. If you want to see it in redemption, I just don't have time tonight. Just go read Ephesians 1 and the 228 word one sentence. Verses 3 through 14. At the Father... To the praise of his glory, verses 3 through 6. The Son, to the praise of his glory, 7 through 12. And the Holy Spirit, his work, to the praise of his glorious grace, verses 13 and 14. Well, what I want you to do now, though, is take a look with me back in John 1. Let's just focus on creation just for a moment. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'm going to do this briefly because I'm not going to be finished with it tonight. There will be another moment that we'll come back to this. But right now, I just want to establish it with you. Look with me in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word is an Old Testament title for the Son of God. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos, the Word, was God. He was in the beginning with God. So now you find out that the Logos, that is the Son of God, is with God. The Logos is God. And He was in the beginning. He too is self-existent. He does not have a beginning. He, too, is in the beginning, and he was with God. And what was he doing in the beginning? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now you got an insight back into Genesis 1-1. God is making all things through his Son, the Word, the Logos. He is making all things through him, and nothing was made that was not made but through him. Now, not everything was made immediately. Some things are made immediately. For instance, you see, man was not made immediately. He was made from something that was made immediately. What did God make immediately? The earth. Then man is made from the mediatorial taking of the dust of the earth. And the woman is made from the rib of the man. 
So, but whether it's mediatorial creation or immediate creation, then what God has done is created everything through his son. Now, we need just a little bit more information. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. That's to your right. Just keep going. You'll get to Ephesians. Then you can go by Philippians. And then you arrive at Colossians chapter 1. And then you can slip down to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So now we just found something else. God is a what? He is a spirit. He can't be seen. That that doesn't mean he's not real. It's just you can't see him. How many of you, when you suck air in, see it? But it's real. It's there. So God is a spirit. God is a spirit. And what do we know? So he, he is, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So what was Christ before he was incarnate? He was spirit. God the Father was spirit. God the Son was spirit. God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity was spirit. But then God sends his son, and his son is incarnate and makes visible the attributes of the invisible God. And he is the image of the invisible God. What's his title? Firstborn, that is the inheritor of all creation. Why? For by him, here we go again, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. In other words, the angelic world, the human world, the world you see here, all the worlds that surround it, the very entire universe. He has made it all and he is what? Before all things, he is self-existent. He is eternal. And in him, so we're now finding out that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, those active in creation, were spirit. God the Son takes upon himself flesh and makes visible the invisible God to us. He is the perfect stamp of his image. But what do we find out? That when the Trinity is working in creation, they are the, the one God is creating everything as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as he creates everything as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is creating everything through the Son, superintended by the Spirit who is hovering over it, Genesis 1-2. And what now do we find out? It is made as the inheritance of the Son. He is the head of the body. I'm, I'm sorry. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh-oh, we just found something else. He is not only the one by which the creation is made under the Father through the Spirit. He is the one, and we're going to find out, he is the one under the Father who accomplishes redemption and applies it through the Spirit. Now we just found out he is the provider. He holds everything together. So we have the Father creating, redeeming, providing, sustaining everything through the Son, for the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this triune, tri-unity, this triune God is one 
and this one subsists in three persons. So here is his existence. He is eternal. He is not becoming. He is. And he is as three persons. But now we find out this, this one who is one in essence exists self-existent and is what? Self-sufficient. He doesn't need the creation. He created the creation for a purpose, but he doesn't need it. In this one in essence who is God, now this one who in essence is God is self-existent and self-sufficient in his existence and subsists. His subsistence is in three persons, one essence. And so we, and, and all, and this one who subsists in three persons in one essence, uh, is self-existent and self-sufficient in his existence. Now, what else do we find out? He is a person. That means he has, per, we, we are persons made in his image. He has, he is personal. He has defining attributes that from which he acts. He is personal as well in his existence that is self-existent and eternal. And so we then find out that he is not only before all, all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. So now we see him, the son, as redeemer, as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Now one more passage and then I'm going to start wrapping things up for us of where we are tonight. Would you go with me now to when, say, Pastor, is this, is all this stuff important? Yeah, it's important. It's important. What is eternal life? You know God. That's eternal life. My first ministry, I had a wonderful time fellowshipping with a guy because my first ministry was a student pastor in a Reformed Baptist church and a Reformed Baptist pastor. We had a good time of fellowship after the service this morning. And um, and we were talking about it, but it brought to my mind, even as I was anticipating tonight, we started with 17 people as, as a student pastor there in Lookout Valley in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we had this couple that were... I'm, I'm not going to give you any more names because I never got permission to tell this, so I won't tell who they are. But there was this one couple, and they just wanted a church that loved Jesus. And I said, well, I want a church that loved Jesus, so let's go for it. She said, well, we're so glad to have you. And I said, and she said, now, one more thing. We don't want theology. And I said, well, you're going to have to call somebody else. And I said, look, may I just share? And then her second one we don't want all this doctrine stuff. I said, now, do you believe the Bible? Yeah. I said, do you believe the Bible's inerrant? She said, yeah. I said, do you believe it is profitable? She said, yeah. I said, do you believe it is sufficient? She said, yeah. I said, well, here's what the Bible said. It's inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Yes. And it is profitable for doctrine. So you can't profit from the Bible without doctrine. She said, now don't get tricky on me. And I said, well, I'm not through. And then I took her to the passage I took you to, John 17, where it says what? 
This is eternal life that you know ology, the study of, that you know God, Theo. So to be saved and have eternal life, you've got to theologize. You've got to know God. I wished I could tell you I had a convert after that conversation, but we were on the way to an understanding of why we were going to do expository preaching uh, while we were there. So this, we want to know God. Folks, listen, as I said, you're in a category four or five hurricane in the culture and in the church. And you need a refuge. You won't flee to God for refuge until you know how great and big your God is. Until you know him. You'll never know him exhaustively. But you can know him accurately. And intimately. As he has revealed himself. In his word. And as he draws you to himself. By his spirit. I mean our worship is dependent on what I'm talking to you about tonight. When we come together on the Lord's day to worship. Why do we come together? To feel good? I'm hoping we feel good, but that's not why we come together. We come together to what? Well, John will do it in just a moment. He's going to tell us in just a moment. He's going to come up here and creatively come up with the theme we sing every Sunday night. Praise God. We're not praising worship. We're not praising ourselves. Praise God. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all you heavenly hosts. Praise him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Your prayers ought to be Trinitarian. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our, in Jesus' name, praying in the Spirit. Your worship ought to be Trinitarian. Have you ever wondered why almost all the great hymns that stick around beyond five years are Trinitarian? Just go look at them. The Apostles' Creed, Trinitarian. These great hymns, Trinitarian. And then when we... And when we give praise to God and confess Him and all of that, it's always when we pray, it is Trinitarian. If you'll listen closely, I do the prayer of illumination before I preach every Sunday. It's Trinitarian. I ask the Father to come and Jesus to speak through the Spirit using His Word in your life. It is Trinitarian. We need to, this is, I can't get more practical than this. This is your life. Your life is God and God dwells in three persons and he is self-existent and he is self-sufficient. And there's, and when he does his covenant of redemption, he has no one else to swear by. There is no one greater. Therefore, Hebrew says, he swore and took an oath of himself. This is the God of glory and might and majesty. And I believe, whether it's how do you deal with besetting sexual sins? How do you deal with the wayward church? 
Our problem today is not technique. Our problem today is we don't understand the gospel and we don't understand the gospel because it's the gospel of God and we don't understand God. We don't even understand the Trinitarian gospel. And therefore, therefore, it is absolutely important that these things are embraced and understood. And if you don't think it's practical, I'm going to finish with one passage of Scripture. Go with me to Acts chapter 17. You're coming into a pagan world, and that's where you're about to leave on Monday. You're going into a relatively pagan world. Now, in Alabama, it's maybe less pagan than other places, but it's still pagan. Now, go with me to Acts chapter 17. Paul is where? He is in the center of the power of paganism. And what does he do as he finds himself in this city of paganism? Well, slip with me in Acts 17 and go with me down to verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. Do you see Paul's love for the law of God? Have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourself any graven images. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, please do not get mad at me at this point. And I am not, I know I'm making a little bit over a point, but I want to make a point by making over a point. And I hadn't even planned on making this point. But here's the point. He was, he was moved. The Bible says that as he looked at the idolatry that was all around him, his spirit was provoked. So what did he do? I'm going to call a boycott. I know what I'm going to do. We need to get somebody else elected. Folks, I'm not saying Christians don't get involved in economics. I'm not saying they don't get involved in politics. In fact, I'm trying to equip people to go there. But what he does first is he begins to proclaim the word of God. So he went to the Jews and he went to the marketplace. That's where he'd find the Gentiles. And he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Because they, that nothing's going to change till they change and their heart changes. And that only happens through the proclamation of the Word of God. So he starts with the sanctity of the Word. And where does he go to first? Well, watch this. And so he is proclaiming this and reasoning with them. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those are the only two philosophies, by the way, that are ever mentioned in the Bible. Uh, The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, one's pragmatism, the other's hedonism, where they also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher, preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was not only preaching the word, he was focused upon what? The gospel. That's what he was doing. And as he's doing that with the Jew and the Gentiles, what does it say? It says that they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's uh, Mars Hill. That would have been the Roman name, Mars Hill. Um, No, I'm sorry. That would have been the Greek. Yeah, Mars Hill, that's the Greek name. 
Ares, that would have been the, the, uh, that would have been the Roman name. Ares is the, is the, um, uh, the god of war. And he went to the mountain, the hill of Ares or of Mars and saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, um, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing, uh, except telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the area and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Oh, my goodness. I just wish I had time to stay here, park. Uh, listen, every primitive tribe we find has religion and gods. That's. The curse of sin perverting their reading of general revelation. And every one of them has a special God. They're pantheists or they're polytheists, but they all have a special God. The tribes that were in North America, the Great Spirit. In South America, the God over the mountain. Greek, they named everything. Bush got a God. War's got a God. This got a God. That's got a God. That's got a God. But it just doesn't work. So what do you do? Well, we got the God that nobody can know. The unknown God. He said, now, <laughs> there's the one I want to tell you about. You can know him. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. What therefore you worship as unknown in ignorance, agnosticism, then I proclaim to you the God. Now, what, how does he start preaching? The God. He starts with God. What God? The God who made the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. That does not live in temples made by man. He is spirit. Nor does he serve by human hands as though he needed anything. Self-sufficient. Self-existence. Since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation or mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined and allotted um, periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. Well, boy, that just did away with Darwinian races and established biblical ethnicities in one human race. But you started with what? God. That's how you get started. So he starts with God. God is creator. But he's not through yet. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way to him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of you. For in him, we, oh, we now find not only the God of creation, but the God of providence. In him, we live and move and have our being. The God of creation, the God of redemption, as you seek for him, and the God of providence who is near to you. And in him, you live and move and have your being. And even some of your own poets have said this. For we indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. See, he got to the 
idols that in the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now he gets to the gospel. Creation, redemption, providence, and consummation, judgment. Who? God. And that's where he starts. Now listen, when Paul goes to a synagogue, that isn't what he does. They've already got that. But when he goes to the Gentile, where does he start? The doctrine of God. From the word. Not from human reason. But from the word. And he proclaims it. Creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And he gets a mixed response. Some reject him. Some are converted. Some say, hey, I'd like to talk to you again. And that's what he does. So let me give you this in closing. Here we go. Just take these with you. Think about them. Pastor, I'd like to spend some more time on these. Great. It's called the Shorter Catechism. It's available in the bookstore. Or give me a call. I'll email it to you. What is God? Here we go. God is a We've already learned this. God is a what? He's a spirit. God is what? Infinite. He is not contained by time, space, or matter. He made it all. God, we call these the omnis, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his existence, his being. He is self-existing. And as he is self-existing, his essence, God, his essence is one. Yet his subs- and yet in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Okay, just stop right there. I'm going to give you the rest and just give it to you in closing prayer. But this one we're coming back to next week. This has part one, part two. Sorry, part one, part two, because we're going to get back. And here's what I'm going to teach you next week, that this God made you in his what? Image. Therefore, you have some of his attributes. Some of them you can't have. But some of them you have. And we see the list. See that list? Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. See what's in the middle? Holiness. And we're going to find out that the attribute of all attributes is God is holy. And we're going to find out that some of those attributes you have by creation and matured in redemption. Those are communicable attributes. Some of them you'll never have. They're incommunicable attributes. And that is going to be so phenomenal to understand who we are now and in eternity. So then go to question number five. Are there more gods in one? Answer, no. Echad, there is only one true and living God. Question six, we're summing up everything we've learned today. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God The same in substance or essence, the same in essence, equal in power and glory, but in subsistence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there are two errors on that, and we're going to find out the two errors next week. Just don't make them between now and next Sunday night. 
There are two errors in this doctrine of the Trinity that are made. You don't want to make either one of them. But here's what we understand. God is one in essence, self-existent and sufficient, and subsists in three persons as one God, equal in power and glory. And that God made you. That God saves you. That God will sustain you so we can come back together next week as you serve him all of this week. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your word. Thank you for the way you work in our lives. Thank you that we may know our God through his son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit who teaches us from his word. God, would you give us a passion to know God so that we might, like Paul, make God known. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.